0: Welcome to our latest Talking Sustainability podcast. I'm Tom Hodgson, an Associate in the Tax Department at Travis Smith, and today I'm joined by Laura Hodgson, a Knowledge Counsel in our team, for the second episode in our podcast series on the topic of substance. Our regular listeners will know that in our first episode on substance, Laura and I explored the meaning of substance, why it's important for taxpayers, and how you can demonstrate it in practice using the Jersey substance rules as a case study. In this episode, we'll be discussing a very recent policy proposal on the topic of substance, the EU's draft directive targeting the misuse of shell companies, also referred to as ATAD3. These proposals were still at a consultation stage at the time of recording of our last episode, but released as a draft directive just before Christmas. In essence, the unshelling proposals are designed to introduce a common minimum substance test across all EU member states that, if breached, would trigger certain adverse tax consequences such as the unshelled entities being unable to benefit from double tax treaties. The proposals also seek to introduce new information reporting requirements on substance, which extend not only to entities caught by the directive, but also those deemed to be at risk of having inadequate amounts of substance. Although the use of the term shell in the title of the directive may for many connote entities engaged in tax avoidance or so-called letterbox companies with no substance at all, the basic scope of the directive is fairly wide with no revenue or de minimis thresholds, potentially catching many holding companies commonly used in business structures. The timeline for implementation of the proposals is also ambitious. They should be implemented by member states by the 30th of June 2023 to take effect on the 1st of Jan 2024. This might still seem some way off, but unhelpfully for taxpayers, the rules contain a two year look back period, which means businesses will need to start thinking about these proposals well in advance of formal adoption by member states. So in the remainder of this episode, Laura and I will be looking to explore three key things. First, which entities are within the scope of the rules. Second, how EU entities can demonstrate a minimum level of substance. And third, what businesses can do now to help prepare themselves for the rules. Laura, before we get into the detail of the draft directive, could you talk our listeners through how the directive is structured as I think this will be important in helping them follow our discussion?
1: Yes, I think the first thing to note is that the draft directive only applies to shell entities that are tax resident in an EU member state.
0: Okay, so it wouldn't have any impact on entities with inadequate substance in say the Channel Islands?
1: Exactly, it just applies to EU entities. And by entity, what I mean is any undertaking that is tax resident in the EU. So this measure isn't limited to companies. at 3 is structured as a five-step process. Step one is the gateway test. And this sifts out any entities that are not at risk of having inadequate substance. And this leaves at-risk entities, which then go through the gateway and move on to the next steps.
0: OK, so just pausing you there, Laura. You, you don't want to go through the gateway, that, that's a bad thing.
1: Correct. As an entity, you definitely don't want to go through the gateway. If you don't go through the gateway, you're considered to have sufficient substance and you're out of the rules completely. So going back to these five steps, the second step is that the at risk entities, these are those entities that have gone through the gateway, will have an annual obligation to report whether or not they meet the minimum level of substance. Entities who meet the minimum substance requirements are presumed not to be shell entities, and they are out of the rules at this point, although, as we will discuss later, they will still need to satisfy this step two annual reporting obligation. Entities who are unable to meet the minimum substance requirements are presumed to be shell entities and have to proceed to the third step. The third step gives these entities the opportunity to supply further information in order to rebut the shell entity presumption if the entities cannot rebut the shell presumption then they move on to step 4 at step 4 there is another opportunity for entities to get out of the rules and they do this by claiming an exemption this is the final possible so called get out of jail free card finally at step 5 There are tax consequences for entities that are presumed to be shells and are unable to either rebut the presumption or claim an exemption. So these are those entities that couldn't get out of the rules under steps one to four.
0: Okay, so we've got step one being the gateway. Step two is the minimum substance test. Step three is the opportunity to rebut the shell presumption. Step four is the exemptions and step five is the adverse tax consequences. Got it. Okay, so let's dive into the detail. Shall we have a closer look first at step one, the gateway?
1: The gateway is structured as three conditions. All of these conditions have to be met in order for the entity to pass through the gateway. There are also five gateway exclusions. If the entity qualifies for any of the gateway exclusions, it won't pass through the gateway either. An entity that doesn't pass through the gateway is outside the scope of the draft directive completely, and therefore none of the reporting obligations or adverse tax consequences will apply. The three gateway conditions are intended to identify entities that have geographically mobile cross-border activities and have outsourced their decision making. Let's look at the first condition. This is looking to see whether the entity has geographically mobile income or is an envelope for certain property. The condition is met where either more than 75% of the entity's revenue in the previous two tax years is relevant income, or more than 75% of the total book value of the entity's assets are real estate assets and specified high value private property or shares. Relevant income is essentially passive income, for example, interest, dividends, rental income, but it also includes income arising on the disposal of shares.
0: And I think it's also worth adding, Laura, that the directive includes a deeming rule for equity holding companies, which essentially prevents those companies from arguing that because no dividends have been paid in the last two years, this condition isn't met where the underlying equity shares represent at least 75% of the total book value of the holding company's assets, effectively, this condition is just deemed to be satisfied?
1: Yes, that's right. Moving to the second condition, this looks at whether the income or assets are cross-border or offshore. And this condition is met where either more than 60% of the entity's immovable property and specified high-value private property is held offshore, or at least 60% of relevant income is from cross-border transactions. The third condition is that in the previous two tax years, the entity has outsourced its day-to-day administration and decision-making on significant functions.
0: Mm, I actually think that third condition is really interesting because when we were looking at the Jersey substance rules last time around, I think it was clear from those rules that outsourcing was generally permitted, provided the entity retained supervision over its service providers. And it's interesting to me that the EU's chosen outsourcing as a, as effectively a quasi-indicator that an entity lacks substance. It seems to be two quite contrasting approaches there. And the other thing that strikes me about this condition is that the entity needs to have outsourced both routine administration and management. That's right, isn't it?
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: Yeah, and, I, and I, that's, I think that's also interesting because I, I would have thought that most entities would already have been making top level management decisions in the member states in order to protect their, their tax residence position. And if that's the case, then you know maybe not many entities will actually end up passing through the gateway.
1: Maybe that will turn out to be true. Or perhaps some entities have been relying upon other factors like place of incorporation for their tax residence, and they haven't considered where they are centrally managed and controlled.
0: Yeah, I think that, no, that that that's a fair point. And and actually, just looking back at the wording of the directive again, it asks whether the shell has outsourced decision making on significant functions. And I'm not sure I've I've seen that phrase used before. But I, but I can see that the EU might argue that decision decision making on significant functions is something different to central management and control. And I suppose might be more akin to the core income generating activities of the entity. Okay, so we have talked about the three gateway conditions, geographically mobile income, cross-border activity and outsourcing. Let's move on to talk about the gateway exclusions. The first one is an exclusion for regulated financial undertakings, which I'm sure will be of interest to the asset management industry.
1: Definitely. It's a broad definition and it encompasses lots of different financial undertakings, such as AFES, USITs, pension institutions, investment firms, and managers of AFES.
0: And what about holding companies in fund structures?
1: No, they'd be unlikely to fall into the regulated financial undertaking exclusion, so they'd need to consider whether they fall into one of the other exclusions instead. There are also two exclusions for holding entities, but both of these are limited by reference to the location of the entity's owners, so they'd need to be carefully considered on a case-by-case basis.
0: That's interesting. And and I think it's also worth noting that there are exclusions for entities with listed securities and entities with five full-time employees. And I think the exclusion for entities with five full-time employees could be quite useful for businesses. It's interesting that there is currently no requirement there for the employees to be located in the same jurisdiction as the entity.
1: Yes, I agree that it's a useful exclusion. However, The wrinkle with the five employees' exclusion is that the employees have to exclusively spend their time carrying out activities which generate relevant income. And the nature of the business might mean that there's no commercial need for five employees to carry out these activities. It will probably depend upon the income in question. For example, if you've got a business that's holding IP, it might need to take steps to manage its IP quite actively in order to generate royalty income. So it might need to do things to um, protect the IP against infringements, and there may be a fair amount of work to do around licensing the IP. In contrast, an entity that passively receives dividend income may not have a commercial need for five employees to carry out activities in relation to this income. So there are some quite useful exclusions, but not all businesses will fit within an exclusion. If an entity meets the three gateway conditions and doesn't qualify for any of the gateway exclusions, then the entity would be categorised as at risk of being a shell. What this means is that the entity will be subject to annual substance reporting requirements at step two. Tom, you were going to talk a little bit about what an at risk entity needs to report.
0: Yes, um, as you say, Laura, an entity that comes through the gateway will move on to step two, where it will be required to report in its tax return, whether it possesses a minimum level of economic substance and provide the documentary evidence if that is the case. For these entities, a minimum level of substance is defined by reference to three indicators of minimum substance being the premises indicator, the bank account indicator and the employee director indicator. All three indicators need to be met. It isn't good enough to just meet one or two. It's also important to note that this substance report is an annual tax reporting obligation, so the position would need to be reviewed each year. And the annual substance report must be made by all entities passing through the gateway, regardless of whether or not the entity actually meets the minimum substance test.
1: OK, let's take a look at the indicators of minimum substance in a little more detail. What does the premises indicator require?
0: So the premises indicator requires that the entity has its own premises or has premises for its exclusive use. Whilst for many entities this may be relatively easy to satisfy, I think the key difficulty is likely to be the requirement for exclusive use, which would seem to preclude the sharing of premises. It's also not clear at the moment whether an entity can, can make use of premises owned or occupied by another group company.
1: That's interesting. What about the bank account indicator?
0: So the bank account indicator requires that the entity has at least one active EU bank account. Each entity will therefore need its own individual bank account, but it is helpful that whilst the account must be in the EU, it doesn't necessarily need to be in the member state where the entity is resident. I think the most difficult part of this indicator is probably the requirement for the account to be active. There's no definition of active in the directive, but some light is shed on its meaning from the list of documentary evidence that the directive says must accompany the annual substance report. This list includes details of any mandates granted to access the bank account and evidence of the account's activity. And this would seem to suggest that, at least to me, that cash needs to move through that account in order for it to be deemed active.
1: That's really interesting. So it's going to be unlikely to be enough to simply open an account and make a cash deposit. What about the final director or employee's indicator of substance?
0: Yes, so this one is actually really two different indicators, one covering employees and one covering directors, and only one of these indicators needs to be met. So looking at the director one first, the director indicator requires that the entity has one or more directors who meet the director conditions and the director is resident in the same member state as the entity or within an appropriate distance.
1: I see that an appropriate distance means that the director is no greater distance from that member state insofar as such distance is compatible with the proper performance of their duties. What I wonder is what this means in the age of homeworking, where individuals can potentially perform their day-to-day duties from almost anywhere in the world. Either way, it's certainly helpful that the individual doesn't need to be in the entity's member state. You mentioned that the director must also meet the director conditions. What do these require?
0: OK, there are three direct conditions. First, the director must be qualified and authorised to take decisions in relation to the activities that generate relevant income or in relation to the entity's assets. Being qualified is not defined in the directive, but the EU's commentary on the directive says that directors qualifications should be such as to allow the director to have an active role in the decision making process and evidence of the director's qualifications and authorisations will need to be provided with the substance tax return filing. The second condition is that the director actively and independently uses this authorisation on a regular basis. This condition, I think, may be the hardest to demonstrate in practice and is likely to require an element of qualitative decision-making from directors. That is, in the case of holding companies particularly, the directors of that company should really apply their minds to whether the decision is in the best interest of the entity, and not slavishly follow the orders of a parent. Interestingly, the director does not need to provide any specific documentary evidence to confirm this condition. And then finally, the third condition is that the director cannot be an employee or director of an entity outside of the Shell's group. I think this condition is really designed to prevent so-called professional directors from meeting the test. And whilst the concept of group is quite widely drawn, covering any associated enterprise, you can see that it could cause some practical difficulties. For example, if a director is also a director of a family or personal company, which is clearly not part of the Shell's group, I can see that that might cause them to fail this condition.
1: It's also not clear to me whether employees of asset managers, so investor directors, would qualify, although they may do so if the asset manager is treated as being an associated enterprise by reason of having significant influence over the shell. Overall, the director indicator looks like it might be the hardest indicator to satisfy, particularly given the focus on qualitative decision making. You mentioned that there was an alternative employee indicator. Is that any easier to meet?
0: Potentially, yes. The employee indicator requires that the majority of the entity's full-time equivalent employees are resident in the member state of the shell or within an appropriate distance. And they are qualified to carry out the activities generating relevant income. In some ways, this condition is is quite similar to the five employee gateway exclusion we discussed earlier in the context of the gateway, although there are a couple of notable differences. The first is that there's no minimum number of employees required, although I think for a majority to be deemed suitably qualified, the entity probably needs to have at least three employees. And the second thing to note is that the employees do not have to exclusively carry out relevant income generating activities. They only need to be qualified to carry them out.
1: OK, so there are three minimum indicators of substance, the premises indicator, the bank account indicator, and either the direct indicator or the employee's indicator. If an entity is able to meet these minimum indicators of substance, what does this mean?
0: So if the entity is able to meet all the required indicators of substance, then it will be presumed not to be a shell. And this means the starting point is that none of the adverse tax consequences under the rules should apply to the entity, although there will still be a compliance cost because the entity will need to annually report its substance position and provide the necessary documentary evidence. If the entity is unable to meet one or more of the minimum substance indicators, the reverse is true and it will be presumed to be a shell. And so we'll move on to step three. Before we do move on to step three, though, Laura, I wondered if if this was worth just taking a moment to reflect on whether these minimum indicators of substance represents a material shift in what is an acceptable minimum level of substance for holding companies in the UK. And for me, I think there are there are three sort of interesting themes that emerge which suggest this is a shift towards a greater level of substance. The first point is the one mentioned at the outset about outsourcing. In the Jersey context, as we discussed last time, outsourcing functions within the same state as the entity will be sufficient to meet those substance rules. Whereas it looks as if in the EU, outsourcing is in and of itself representative that the entity is potentially at risk of being a shell. The second thing is that I think asset three represents an interesting shift towards imposing clear bright line tests on substance. For example, as we discussed in our last podcast, the Jersey substance rules are frequently couched in terms of adequacy. So for example, an entity must have an adequate physical presence or adequate employees. And I think this inherently introduces a degree of flexibility. It means different approaches can be adopted to reflect the activities of the entity in question. In contrast, the EU's approach is quite different and is seeking to introduce a minimum floor on substance that applies in all cases and without any real regard to the functions of the entity in question. The final observation I'd make is is particularly in the context of the director condition where I think ATAD3 at marked a shift towards focusing on the qualitative decision-making of directors. This was already a theme that we saw emerging in the likes of the EU Danish cases and, and some other discussion on on beneficial ownership in the international fiscal context. But it is perhaps the first time we've seen it expressed to clearly require a need for active and, and independent decision-making.
1: Really interesting. I agree that this is a definite shift towards a greater level of substance. Turning back to the draft directive now, so we've looked at step one, the gateway, and we've looked at step two, the minimum indicators of substance and noted that an entity which meets the minimum indicators of substance should not be subject to the adverse tax consequences under the rules. However, not all entities with substance will necessarily be able to meet the required indicators of substance at step two, and it's for this reason that step three of the rules gives entities that don't meet the indicator tests the opportunity to provide additional evidence in order to rebut the presumption that they are a shell.
0: Yes, and there might be good commercial reasons for using a clean company in a fund structure. For example, it might have been incorporated for banking or or regulatory reasons. So, Laura, what, what do entities actually need to do in order to rebut the presumption?
1: What the entity needs to do is prove that it performed and controlled the activities that generate its relevant income and it also needs to prove that it bore the risk of these activities. So specific evidence will need to be produced by the entity. For example, the entity will need to produce a document setting out the commercial rationale behind the establishment of the entity, as well as detailed information about employee profiles and decision making.
0: Yeah, that that sounds like quite an administrative burden for entities and, and maybe in practice, then this sort of step three is not going to be that useful.
1: Yes, I think it's likely to be a large burden. However, if an entity has not been able to rebut the presumption at step three, that's not the end of the story. The last remaining route out of the directive is to claim an exemption at step four, the final get out of jail free card, if you like. Tom, in what circumstances could an entity claim this
0: exemption? So the exemption is only available if the existence of the entity doesn't reduce the tax liability of its beneficial owners or the group as a whole. And the entity will need to provide information allowing the comparison of the overall tax position with and without the existence of the entity. In essence, this is very similar to the idea of tracing that we discussed in our last episode. That is a holding company should only be entitled to treaty relief if, but for the existence of the holding company, the investors in that entity would be eligible for treaty relief.
1: I see. So an exemption is really only available in quite limited circumstances. If the entity is unable to claim an exemption, it would be subject to adverse tax consequences in step five. The main adverse impact of ATAD 3 is that it denies shell entities the benefit of double tax treaties and also EU tax directive. So the parent subsidiary directive and the interest and in royalties directive would not be available to shell entities. However, the shell entity will still be tax resident in its member state, and that member state can still continue to tax the shell entity on its income and gains.
0: How does that actually work if the entity is still tax resident then, where it's incorporated and established?
1: From a practical perspective, the tax authority in the member state where the shell entity is located must either refuse to issue the shell entity with a tax residency certificate or such certificate must carry a health warning that the entity is not entitled to treaty benefits. And this will prevent the entity from accessing those treaty benefits.
0: OK, I see. And shall we talk about how the look through mechanism works? I think from reading the directive, this is this is quite unclear.
1: Yes, it definitely is. Basically, the directive imposes obligations on EU payers of income to shell entities and EU shareholders of shell entities. Depending upon the precise structure, the entity shareholder might be taxed as if it had received income paid to the shell entity or the payer might be obliged to withhold tax on the payment. And this might result in tax leakage, particularly as a result of additional withholding
0: tax yes and clearly entities won't want to suffer that additional tax, what is there to stop them from filing a return saying that they meet the substance requirements and and therefore trying to sidestep the rules?
1: I think really there's two ways that the directive will be policed. Firstly, there will be substantial penalties for taxpayers that make false declarations or fail to submit an annual return when required to do so. And the draft directive actually provides for a minimum penalty of 5% of the shell entity's turnover in these scenarios. Secondly, the draft directive contains provisions for the automatic exchange of substance information by member states. And then there's also a mechanism for member states to request audits of entities located in other member states.
0: yeah that's, that's really interesting. So if a member state tax authority suspects that an entity doesn't have sufficient substance it could request an audit which effectively would flush out entities without substance. Okay so before we wrap up Laura, I wanted to just explore for our listeners what businesses can be doing now to respond to these proposals. What would you suggest that they do? I think the best
1: option for businesses is to try not to pass through the gateway at step one at all. If they do this they'll be able to avoid the annual reporting burden. And this would be be best achieved by moving decision-making onshore and in-house so the outsourcing gateway test is not met. Alternatively, businesses could look to one of the gateway exclusions and in particular, see if they can satisfy the five-employee exclusion.
0: I, I agree with all of that. And I suppose failing that, the second best option would be for businesses to ensure they have the requisite minimum level of substance so that the adverse tax consequences of the rules don't apply as we've already discussed, meeting the premises and bank account indicator ought not to be overly burdensome, but it's really the director and employee indicator that could be the the more difficult one. And I think particular scrutiny should therefore be applied to the residency qualifications and other directorships of individuals looking to meet that director indicator.
1: Yes, definitely agree with all of that. Finally, word on timing. Due to political pressure, I think it's highly likely that the draft directive will pass into EU law. And as Tom mentioned at the beginning, the directive is due to take effect from the 1st of January 2024. However, due to the two year look back period when applying the gateway conditions, businesses will need to start considering whether they're caught and what they can
0: do to bolster their substance position sooner rather than later. Laura, a special thank you from me for talking us through these points today. If any listeners would like to get in touch to discuss anything that's been raised in today's podcast, our details can be found on our website.